Welcome to Harvest. My name is Trey. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And I just want to say welcome. Um, if you're a first-time guest, I want to say thank you for joining us and being here. Uh, if you consider this your church home, it's good to see you again, and thank you for um, being faithful. Uh, we have been in a collection of talks called Pl- uh, Prisons to Playgrounds. And kind of the idea behind these collection of talks is um, when you think about a prison and when you think about a playground, they are very similar in how they are built. Um, prisons have walls, they have gates, they have fences, and they have supervision. Playgrounds have walls, they have gates, they have supervision. One is meant to destroy joy as a punishment. The other is, is meant to enhance joy and to have fun. And a lot of times in our lives, whether it be our marriage, whether it be our friend group, whether it be our community, whether it be our jobs, you insert the blank. What God designed to be enjoyable and to be a playground, we have turned it into a prison that we see no escape from. And I want to talk, and the point of this series has been a a collection of talks about how do we go from viewing our our current reality, which feels like a prison, into God's desired viewpoint and perspective on our lives to view it and enjoy it as a playground. And the past couple weeks, we've talked about a couple of different things. You can find that online on our website, on our podcast. Um, Those messages are there. But this week, I want to talk about something that I think robs us of joy and turns what should be a playground into a prison. And it is this thing called pride. This thing called pride. Um, Does anybody anybody in here like the person that talks about themselves 24-7? Nobody. Okay. So um, I... uh, I, I have, I'm a, when I was a young communicator, and I still am a young communicator, um, but like when I was like 18, um, 17 years old, and I first got the chance to start preaching on a weekly basis, um, I used to try to come up with all of these um, cute and memorable, they call them sticky statements. It's these statements that are illiterate, they rhyme. Um, it's these statements, and yes, I still use some of them today because it helps you remember them, but it's these statements that um, just are so illiterate. And if you've grown up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. Um, like, for example, I preached a message about a year ago talking about Jesus was forgiven, so that, or Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that way we could be forgiven, Jesus was forsaken so that way we could flourish, and Jesus was forsaken so we could have fellowship. All Fs. Um, illiterate, cute, memorable, whatever. So I used to come up with these little like statements and I actually had a folder in my phone that um, had my quotes of things that like, oh, that's good. I'm going to save that for later. And what, what happened was I'd be at like dinner or I'd be at somebody's house and they would, they would say something or a question would come up and I would say, you know, a wise person once said, and I would quote myself, <laughs> And they'd be like, wow, that is, that's, that's actually really helpful. Who said that? And I was like, ah, me. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. And so I got to the point to the people that knew me best and were around me the most, anytime I would ever say something like seemingly smart or um, it was like too good to like, it'd be like off the top of my head, they'd be like, are you quoting yourself right now? I'm like, maybe. And they're like, and they got into the joke. Anytime I'd said something like really clever, all of my friends, I could see them behind the person I'm talking to going like, 
patting my, like themselves on my back. Like that's what I was doing. I was patting myself on my back for being the smartest person in the room because I would quote myself. The person who quotes themselves is the worst, right? And I take full ownership of that. And so there was a time in my life where I was just that person. Or maybe you've been at a gathering and you feel like you cannot one-up this person who continues to one-up you in these stories. Um, like, for example, if you say, well, like, yeah, this past week at work I did this, and that person chimes in, I mean, that's great. But at my job, actually, and then they, like, out-tell your story. And you're like, that's also great. Um, my kid uh, made the A-B honor roll. Really? Does he need some tutoring? Because my kid got all A's. And you're like, okay. Um, and then you're like, well, you know, my kid almost had perfect attendance. And they're like, well, my kid uh, went straight from um, uh, the delivery center straight into preschool and has never missed a day of preschool. <laughs> you're just like, I'm going to kill you. Like, everybody, like, just, it's this thing that, that, that sense of pride, that sense of selfishness, that sense of boasting in yourself. There's, there's something about that that we can see that ugliness in others, even though we may sometimes be blind to it ourselves. And we live in a pretty self-centered world, don't we? If not individually, then, then tribally for sure. Maybe you yourself individually will not boast in your own achievements and your own doings and your own sayings and quotes or whatever your skill set is. But you'll brag and boast in your tribe, whether it be a political tribe, whether it be a, um, a church tribe, whether it be in whether I put my kids in public school, private school, or homeschool tribe. We will boast in these tribes because we think that we are the elite tribe. Even in the church, we can be self-centered as individuals and as a tribe. It's an us versus them mentality in which we are never wrong. And when they find out they're wrong, they can come crawling back to us if they want. But I will not be the reconciler. They can come crawling back to us. And will we accept their apology? Maybe. Depends on how I'm feeling. Maybe I just want to let them linger in the hurt. Maybe I want to let them linger in the, in, the, in the frustration. Maybe I don't want them to find wholeness right away because they need to feel what they did. And maybe because we are superior individuals, we are the superior tribe, maybe we struggle with this thing called pride. And here's the thing about being pride, and here's how I think it robs us, robs us of joy, because joy is circumstantial. And here's what pride says. Pride says, I am the center of the world. Selfishness says, and you may never admit it, and you may never even think that you are like this. But when circumstantial, when, when I am the center of the world and circumstances are not going great and it robs me of joy, it lets me know that my circumstances determine my joy, which means I was the center of the world. Or maybe... Let me help you out. Maybe you've heard this or seen this or maybe even said this. I don't deserve this. I'm a good person. And we watch, whether it be our own lives or other people's lives, we watch the brokenness of this world unravel any sense of joy to the person who thinks they're at the center of it. 
that when the brokenness of this world unravels circumstances that we did not want or desire in front of us or around us or in our homes, all joy is lost because we thought life was supposed to go this way because we earned it or we deserve it. And what a miscue way of living and thinking. What a bad way to attempt to maintain joy and importance. You know what the opposite of this mindset and of this way of thinking and living is? The opposite of pride, the thing that God has called his children to do and to be? It's humility. Let me say it like this. When we have humility, we find joy. Not based on what happens to me, but in what is God and what God is doing in me and through me. It's one of those sticky statements. It's not in my quotes binder. I'm not going to bring it up later. Don't worry about it. But when we have humility, we find joy not based on what happens to me, but in what God is doing in me and through me. And I want to tell you, humility is the long-lasting door to joy. It's not a real sexy door that everybody loves to talk about. It's not a real thing that everybody pursues that, that has all the glitz and the glamour. It's not a real sexy door that everybody wants to strive for, but it is a real door biblically to joy in our lives. Now think about how desperate the world is to find joy. Think about how desperate it is to find that sense of happiness. Think about how unsuccessful it actually is. So, if it is an all-out, no resources reserved, I will spend every ounce, every penny I have to maintain and obtain joy. But I can't do it based on performance. There has to be another way of doing this. And maybe you have not exhausted all your resources to pursue joy, but you can look at people in the world who have, and they will tell you up front, it does not buy happiness. Tom Brady, um, who is the greatest quarterback of all time, not debatable. I hate him because I'm a Jaguars fan, but he is the greatest. Shout out Jacksonville Jaguars 904. This is our year! Anyways, um, I, he is the greatest. And after his sixth Super Bowl ring, here's what he said at an interview. He said, after my sixth Super Bowl ring, my wife pulled me aside and asked me, what more do you have to prove? And he said, I thought that that would bring me happiness, and it just it didn't. I thought to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. Somebody at the peak of their field will be remembered for decades from now. Is in the history books. He, uh, he will be in the Hall of Fame for sure. There will be a statue of him in the National Football Hall of Fame. Records will be set by him that will never be touched or broken again. And he says, this, this didn't deliver. This isn't enough. When we exhaust all of these resources and we've watched people and it doesn't bring us what we are all looking for, right? We talked about it the first week. Our constitution even says this. Our, sorry, our declaration of like you have the right to pursue, like you have the right to liberty, you have the right to freedom, and you have the right to pursue happiness. Rights, freedom, and liberty, all of that yours. Happiness, good luck pursuing it. There has to be another way. And this is the way that I think and believe biblically that we can pursue happiness and obtain joy is through humility. 
It's through humility. It's a new way of thinking and living. And that's what the book of Philippians, which is where we're going to land this morning, is teaching. And that Paul is trying to get the church of Philippi to see differently, think differently. And that's what God is trying to get to us as well. Because if circumstances never change in your favor, if circumstances never change, well, like, let's ask, like, what if the circumstances you're dealing with never change? You know, you go to places and some people will tell you, like, God will turn your circumstance around. And you believe we will. And we pray that he will. But what if he never does? Like, honestly, what if he never does? What if God never changes your circumstances for your favor on this earth? Or at least the circumstances favorably that is ideal to you. Like, what if God does not heal that person in the hospital? Well, then is God no longer good? Is this life no longer full of joy? But what if this, what if in humility we didn't go at it from that perspective of I'm looking for God to change the circumstance? What if God isn't looking to change the circumstance? What if he's looking to change you in the middle of any circumstance? What if God wants to do something in you and through you in the middle of any circumstance you could ever walk through and that way you would change for the better, maybe not your circumstance? Maybe you could have joy even in the midst of an enjoyable circumstance. A little bit of context, if you've been here for the past couple weeks or you know anything about the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this letter. The whole theme of the book of Philippians is to see differently and think differently, to have joy in your life. The whole theme is joy. And Paul is writing this letter in a prison in Rome, chained. Um, There's no sunlight in his prison. It's a disease-ridden prison a lot of prisoners who went in there got sick and they never actually made it to their trial because they died of sickness and Paul is writing this letter next to a little lamp so that way he can barely see to this church and he's writing about joy and this is what Paul is trying to get the people to see this is what God is trying to get you to see I think that we have misinterpreted what it means to have joy I think we've become the center of our own worlds whenever we have never been called to there's a couple things about humility that this passage addresses and a couple things about God changing us and doing something in us and through us that I think this passage addresses and it can all be found in the context of humility. So if you would read with me, for the past couple weeks we've broken down chapter one. We're gonna start in chapter two this week. Philippians chapter two, verses one through two. Really quickly, it says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and of one mind. Now, we started off this passage in verse 1. It says, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what the therefore is there for. So when he says, therefore, he's talking about, okay, in light of chapter 1, Therefore, let me make this next statement. What is chapter one all about? Well, just to give you a quick little recap, chapter one is all about this. Whether I'm pursuing Jesus. I have made the decision to accept Jesus as my savior. I'm pursuing Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm believing that which is my ultimate hope is greater than my immediate fear. We talked about that last week. That heaven is my home and I am just a traveler on this place called earth. This is not my forever home. I am on my way and come life or death to live as Christ and to die as gain. My ultimate hope is greater than my immediate fear. Therefore, 
And here's where we are with the therefore. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. So let me say it like this. Uh, my first thought is this. Humility is not something you develop. It is a byproduct of spending time with Jesus. Humility is not something you develop. It is a byproduct of spending time with Jesus. This word like-minded in the Greek is um, pronounced phroneo. It is single-minded, a single truth. Not believing in all they hear, right? I can't tell you how many quotes my mom has told me, how many facts my mom has given me, and I ask where she gets it from, and it's from Facebook. Like, I can't tell you. So we don't absorb all these truths and all these different facts as facts, we don't, we don't become flustered because we read one thing that said the earth is going to explode tomorrow. We don't, we don't get flustered or paranoid because of these, uh, these facts that aren't really based in any truth. It's just, it's just speculation. Because culture's truth is constantly changing anyways, and so I'm not grounded in that truth, a single truth. Not believing in all they hear, but having a single mind, a single way of forming values and convictions. A single way in which their life is purposed to honor and glorify Jesus in all they do. The greatest way that you can view life, that you can view circumstances, that you can view the culture around you, that you can view anything, is not taking this and filtering all of the world and filtering it into reading God's word. It's taking God's word, going to the source first, and then filtering the world through the Bible. It's not filtering the Bible through the world. It's not going like, hey, let me look at these circumstances. Let me, let me go to the Bible with my own preconceived opinions and find something that affirms my opinions. It's rather, let me go to the Bible with a blank slate, ready to receive any truth that God has for me. And that is truth, and nobody can tell me different. It's the single mind of when the world panics, like we talked about last week, that we're like, that's not the end-all, be-all. Well, how can you come to that conclusion when everything around you seems chaotic? That's not where I get my source of information. That may be what I see, but that is not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all is God's word, and this is my filter and how I view life. But what does this require? It requires humility. It means someone else knows better than us. It means someone is greater than us, and we're listening and surrendering to what that person knows and says for us. Right? Nobody wakes up and goes, I'm going to be humble today, and then is actually humble. Right? Even if they do a selfless act with the thought of, I'm being humble, even that in and of itself is not humble. The person that truly spends time with Jesus, the Spirit produces humility in them. Right? I know I've talked about this before, but I just want to reemphasize it with it. When Jesus says he is the vine, and apart from me you can produce nothing, you can do nothing, here's what he's saying. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchard or a vineyard. I don't know if you've ever been to any of those places, but here's what you don't go. Whenever you go up to the grapes in a, in a vineyard that they're going to produce wine with, you don't lean up and you don't hear groaning or moaning or striving or like any sort of like, oh, I just want to grow, let me be a grape. Like I just, you don't hear any of that. If you have an apple tree in your backyard or an orange tree, we're in Florida. Like, if you have any of those places and you lean up close to a fruit that is growing, you don't hear, come on! 
You don't hear any of it. It just grows because it is attached to the vine. For those of you in here who are wanting to do selfless things, who are wanting to be humble, you know you're supposed to be this, but you don't know how to do this, and so you're just like, I just got to create patterns of humility and patterns of humbleness in my life. I'm here to tell you that is not the way to go about it. Here's how you go about it. You spend time in God's word and you spend time in prayer. Because when you spend time with Jesus as a byproduct, he will produce humility in you. So that way you're not finding yourself being like, be humble! You're just walking in humility because you're walking with Jesus. And the spirit is producing humility in you. My second thought is this from this passage. Humility is not about belittling yourself. It is remembering that Jesus who made you is more. We continue on to the passage, verses 3 through 8. It says this. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. You ever met that person? Again, we're going back to this thought. Humility is not about belittling yourself. It's about remembering that Jesus who made you is more. When we talk about humility, and again, humility, if you were walking into church today expecting revival, expecting this big hoorah, hellfire, and brimstone type message, like, what does he have to say about culture? I'm here to tell you, I don't have a lot to say about culture. I have a lot to say to the people of God because that's who the Bible was written to. Um, When it comes to humility, which is, again, what God has called us to be and to do, humility is not about belittling, belittling yourself, I know a lot of people, and maybe you do too, maybe you've heard this of, um, like, hey, describe yourself, loser. I'm so humble. <laughs> hey, describe yourself, fat and lazy, because I'm humble. <laughs> you're just like, you're just belittling yourself at this point. Like, you don't think very highly of, no, I don't. I think I'm, I think I'm the scum of the earth, I'll tell you that. Like, I think I'm the worst person on this planet. And in fact, if you try to tell me how much you've sinned, I'm here to tell you I will go out and sin more so that way I can be worse than you. And you're just like, chill out. Like, chill out, bro. Like, humility is not about belittling yourself. And self-condemnation may be the most rampant type of condemnation on our planet. In our young adults group, we talked, we were, do, we were doing a relationship um, series, and we started out, the most important relationship you can have outside of your relationship with Jesus is to yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, then you don't love the image of God. And what does God's word say? Love your neighbors as yourself, meaning there is already a known knowledge that you should love yourself. So it doesn't mean belittling yourself. And I want to I want to affirm that in you this morning. I'm not the type of pastor that will get up here and just affirm everything you do. But I want to affirm that number one, you are a child of God. You are made in his image. You are not a mistake on this planet. There is not one thing about you that God goes, oops, I wish I would have done that differently. Everything about you, how you look, your story, God knows and is not taken back by any of it. And he loves you. 
And he wants you to love yourself and stop condemning yourself. The hardest person to love is the person that you look at in the mirror on a daily basis. Because you know what you do, you know what you think, and you just think the worst of yourself. And I'm here to tell you that God loves you, he is for you, and he is proud of you. He is. He is. So humility is not belittling yourself, it is this, and I love this C.S. Lewis quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. That's humility. Don't get it confused. Don't down-talk yourself whenever people are like, hey, describe yourself in a couple words. Uh, fat, lazy, and horrible. <laughs> no, like, I, I am I'm loved. I, and if you can't think of anything else of, like, I'm a dad, like, that's not, like, one of the, I don't even know. But to say, like, I'm loved, I'm cared for, um, and I have a Savior who loves me, like, who has redeemed me. Like, that's amazing, but here's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. Paul in verses 3 through 5 gets very relational in his practicality to the church. He's saying stop being selfish. Stop being vain. Start being selfless and humbly value each other. Stop being selfish jerks. Value life. Even your enemies, even your enemies, value them. Even when you don't feel like they're worthy, in humility, love them. You know, if you break down the majority of the New Testament of Paul's letters, here's what Paul, if you could, like, if I could, like, um, you know, spark notes it real quick. Here's what the majority of the New Testament, Paul's letters. Hey, guys, hey, church, hey, church in Corinth, hey, church in Philippi, hey, church in Ephesus, um, praying for you. Here the gospel is advancing. Great. Stop being stupid. Stop sinning, please. Please stop. Why? Because Jesus has a better plan for you. I love you. Bye. Like, that's the majority of the New Testament, right? Like, stop. We think like, oh, the church in 2022 is as bad as it has ever been. It's not. In fact, there's a whole chapter in one of Paul's letters that talks about, hey, stop having incest in the church. You're like, what? what? Imagine that letter being written out loud and everybody knows who we're talking about. That'd be pretty awkward. Like, be like, just at me next time, bro. Like, just, everybody knows who we're talking. Like, imagine that. Like, but that's what Paul is saying. He's like, hey, listen, praying for you, gospel's being advanced. Let me remind you of the gospel really quick. It's great. It's great. It's good news. Preach that news. But please, for the love of God, stop. Stop this. Love you, though. Praying for you. Be well. Peace. Allah. Like, amen. <laughs> like, Allah. I don't know. Paul is saying in this passage, and he's saying, like, please stop being selfish and just start being loving towards your neighbors. Why? Because verses 6 to 8, what we just read, he humbled himself first. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's what I'm talking about. Let me go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Let me go all the way back. God, perfect, and he is complete, right? God is relational because he is complete in and of itself. There are three parts of God, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. They had a perfect relationship. God did not create all of this because he was lonely. He created it for his glory. And so God, being complete in and of who he is as himself, said, I am going to create this, this whole universe, all of creation, for my glory and for my enjoyment. 
And so he creates the universe. He creates the heavens. He creates all of it. And then he creates this specific creation called humanity in his image. He creates humanity in his image to have a relationship with them as well. Not because he needed us, but because he wanted Because there's a difference between a need and a want. He wanted to have relationship with his creation. So he creates a man who will live on for eternity, which is the only creation that will live on for eternity. So when God created you and me, he did not create you and me to have a relationship just on this earth, but to have a relationship for all of eternity because we are eternal beings. So he creates man and he creates woman. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. He puts them in this garden. He sets them up for success. He puts one tree in the garden. He says, do not eat of this tree. Why does he do that? Because love Love without choice is not love. That's kind of the definition of love. I've said it before. You try to love somebody who doesn't love you, you go to jail, right? We can all agree. So he loves, he wants humanity to love him like he loves humanity by choice. And so he says, I want you, you can enjoy all of this. Just don't eat from this one tree, right? So Adam and Eve have a perfect life. They are literally walking and talking with the triune God in a perfect relationship with him. They have jobs that are fruitful that they love. They're not clocking in and out. It's not the miserable job. It's an enjoyable job that they have. They have great relationship with each other. They're literally walking around an insectless garden having sex whenever they want under the tree because they're naked and life is great. Like That sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Life is enjoyable. Think about all the trees they could eat from from the garden. They could go pick fruit from this tree, look at each other, you know, get a little like, you know, have a little moment, have sex, go to the next tree. Like that sounds enjoyable with your spouse. This guy talks about sex a lot. I'm sorry. All right. God talks about a lot. We're going to talk about a lot. But continuing on with the story, Adam and Eve, they get to this point and and Satan goes, hey, you want to be like God? Eat of this tree. He doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, the very f- one of the very first things that Satan says to the Adam and Eve, he goes, did God actually say? And that will be how God, or how the enemy tries to confuse us all. Did God actually say this? I, yeah, he did. But what did he mean by it, though? Well, I think he means I need to live my life in a, in a humble way. I think he just need, means you need to do humble things, not actually change your spirit. No, I think I need to pursue humility. No, I just think that you just need to give that homeless person a couple bucks and feel good about the rest of your life and not actually change anything about you. I think you're right. And next thing you know, here's what happened with Adam and Eve, and here's what happens with us. They eat of the fruit. They go against God. And here's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. They sinned against God. God came down into the garden, and he goes, What have you done? And I love Genesis 3.15. It's the first ever promise of Jesus. God goes, there will be consequences to your actions. Understand this. But one day I'm going to send somebody from the seed of a woman, and he will step on the head of the serpent and crush his head. This is the first ever promise of Jesus. Right after humanity, perfect humanity, Sinned against God, God promised Jesus. God promised a Savior. And Jesus looked at humanity all throughout the Old Testament as we're trying and striving and we're sacrificing animals, we're building altars, and you're like, please accept my sacrifice. We're finding as spotless of a lamb as we can find. And we're putting it on a broken tree um, called an altar, and we're saying, accept our sacrifice. 
And it wasn't enough. And God goes, okay, I'm going to step down in the most vulnerable state of humanity that exists, which is of a baby. And I'm going to fulfill thousands of prophecies from the Old Testament. I'm going to step down as a baby, fully vulnerable, in the hands of, of two broken people, Mary and Joseph. I'm going to be born of a virgin. I'm going to be a baby. I'm going to, I'm going to go through life as a kid, and as a teenager. I'm never going to sin. I'm never going to rebel. I'm never going to complain when my mom asked me to do the chores. Like, imagine having Jesus as a sibling. How annoying that must have been. But I'm going to live a perfect life. And my time on earth, I'm going to serve humanity. When I see people with disease, I'm going to serve them. When I see people that cannot walk, I'm going to tell them to get up. And that is all great, but that was not the point of Jesus coming. The point of Jesus coming was this point. And when there was an enemy that was greater than any medicine could ever cure, than any doctor could ever explain, that what happens after this life, what that answer is, what that problem is, the fact that they are currently separated from me and have no way back to me, I'm going to step down. And I'm going to take the punishment. I will go to a broken tree as a spotless lamb and be a sacrifice and be the ultimate sacrifice to God so that way no more sacrifices ever have to be made. Trey, Trey, why couldn't, why couldn't God just wink our sin away? Like, why couldn't he just be like, hey, Adam and Eve, you didn't really know what you were doing. I'm gonna give you a second chance because then God would no longer be just. When you describe God as holy, one of the greatest definitions of holy that there is is consistent. So because, because God is consistent, because God is fair, and because God is just, there has to be punishment for sin. There, when you miss the mark of perfection, there has, to be, there has to be a punishment. And because God cannot be associated with sin, he can't just wink it away. There has to be a payment. And Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. And so to fulfill his own justice... He did not look at you and me and say, you need to live a perfect life. You need to die on the cross. You, and then you, by your own power, need to get up three days later. He says, I'm going to do that. I will take all the wrath of God and hatred that God has towards sin, not sinners, but sin, and I will bear it on the cross. I will be obliterated by the wrath of God on the cross. I will be forsaken on the cross. That way you never know what being forsaken of God looks like. And then I will rise up three days later, and then I will look at all of humanity and say, this gift is yours if you choose to accept it or not. Jesus came in the form of a servant and served humanity even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. That is the ultimate servant. That is what humility looks like. And a lot of us, we look at that model and we hear that story and we're like, I want to do God justice by serving others. I want to do God justice by, by helping humanity because Jesus helped humanity. And a lot of us want to please God. We, wanna, we want God to be pleased in what we do and how we act. And our faith turns more into performance than it does anything else. But please understand this. Pleasing God isn't about performance. It's about self-abandonment. Ple 
pleasing, pleasing God isn't about performance, it's about self-abandonment. And serving God and people is not what I do, it's actually who I've been called to become, which is a servant, a humble servant like my Savior. And what if you never get the platform, what if I never get the platform or recognition? Let me ask you this, what if you never get the platform or the recognition for being a humble servant? Would you still serve anyways? Why or why not? If nobody ever says thank you for a single selfless act you ever commit or do, but you know you are walking as a humble servant according to Scripture, is that not enough? Would you still find joy in the fact that somebody's life is better because you were willing to sacrifice? Or do you want the praise? Which leads me to my second and final, or my third and final thought. Humility is not meant to bring you glory, but to give God his. Humility is not meant to bring you glory, but to give God his. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what Christians are historically the worst at? And I struggle with this for a season of when somebody comes up to, like, for example, when somebody came, like, comes up to me and says, like, hey, great message. Thank you for the message. Like, I appreciate it. Or, like, whenever somebody gets done leading worship, hey, way to lead today. Super, like, you're so gifted. You know what Christians are the worst at? It's just saying, like, thank you. We go, oh, no, it's not me. Not me. Blessed. Like, blessed am I. Above, 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 above me is him. Like, I am just, I, like, I, I beseech God in all that I do, and I am just a humble servant. You're just like, dude, just shut up and say thank you for the compliment, right? Like, we're the worst at it. We're the worst at just saying thank you. That's not what I'm talking about if that's what you heard whenever I said that. Here's what I am talking about. Did you do what brought you praise to receive praise or to make much of Jesus, honor Jesus, and serve others? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves whenever we serve, whenever we do things um, humbly and out of humility. Did we just do what we did to receive praise or did we do it to give praise to the one who's worthy of it? We will spend all of eternity praising Jesus, and I just want us to get a head start. So I close with this. How, do you, how often do you do prideful things? How often do you say prideful things? And what is the source of that? Is it self-centeredness in your life? Where you think everything revolves around you? Where you think that this whole thing is about your life and about your story and about your family? Or is it saviorism, where you think you are the end-all, be-all to all problems in your home, in your community? You have the answer to all the world's policy problems, to all the injustice in the world. And if people would just look at your Facebook feed, the whole world would be perfect. Is it the saviorism mindset? You may be able to fix a wire, you may be able to fix a tire, but you cannot save a soul. You're not the savior of the world. But let's flip the script 
And instead of viewing hardships of life with a why me perspective, let's view it with humility of what do you want to do in me and through me perspective. Paul had every right to look at God and go, why am I in prison? All I was doing was preaching the gospel. I was literally on the, on the corner of a street proclaiming the good news of the gospel, and I got arrested. And now here I am. Paul had every right to go, why me? What was I doing? <clears throat> but instead, Paul looked to the heavens and goes, <clears throat> what do you want to do in me and through me? And God says, I want you to tell the rest of the world about joy. I want you to tell them that life isn't a prison of hopelessness, but a playground of joy, even in chains. That's a perspective shift. And I'm here to, I'm not, I'm not, I will not promise you today that when you leave here because you went to church and because you were a good Christian and you, and you gathered with us and you sang these songs and you proclaimed truth and you sat under a message and you received truth and that you go out of here and because you're going to spend X amount of hours in prayer this week, you're never going to miss a devotional time this week. Good for you. You're going to journal every week. I'm here to tell you, those are good habits. Those are, those are, those are good things to do. But I'm here to tell you that that may not actually change your circumstances. I'm not going to promise you that. You still may feel lonely because of a lack of community. You still may feel you, you still may feel like an alien at your workspace or at your school because of what you believe and how you act, because of what you say and what you don't say, because of what you do and what you don't do compared to your friends and your coworkers or whoever. You still may feel ostracized because of your faith and that may never change but what can change is if you have joy in the middle of a hard circumstance what can change is if you can have that you can have joy in the middle of a prison what Paul says in the ending verses of chapter one is my chains actually advance the gospel. Because if life was easy and I proclaimed Jesus and then life got hard and I forsook Jesus and what I believed about Jesus was never true in the first place. Where do we get joy from? Where does this start? Where does this, how can I get to, I wanna ask what God wants to do in me and through me in the middle of a hard circumstance. It starts with humility. And humility opens the door to joy in your life like you will never believe. And what areas do you believe God is calling you to humility? I don't know your heart, I don't know your spirit, but here's what I do know, that the spirit knows you. If you're a follower of Jesus, it lives in you. And you may be feeling this, this conviction, not guilt, please never feel guilt when you walk in these doors. Guilt and conviction are very two different things. Guilt is the thing that made Adam and Eve run and hide from God when God asked where you were. Conviction is the part of the Holy Spirit that pulls you into all that Jesus has for you in this life. Conviction draws you out of hiding, is exposes the wrongdoing, and it just simply says, this isn't how Jesus would act, this isn't how Jesus would talk, this isn't how Jesus would think. Let's walk this path instead of this path. That's conviction. Guilt says, go and hide for you are a sinner. Conviction says, come out into the light because he's already saved you, forgiven you, redeemed you, and he loves you and is for you and has good things for your life, for your spirit. So even now, 
What are some things in your life that you're like, God is working on me in this area with pride. Would you give it to him? Would you give it to him? And let's flip the perspective instead of a why me attitude. We can look at him and we can say, in this season, no matter how hard it is or how difficult it is, no matter how overwhelming it is, what are you wanting to do in me and what are you wanting to do through me? Because I'm ready. I'm ready. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond in worship. And you respond as you see fit, as God sees, as you feel God calling you. You can sit down in your seat and pray when we start singing. You can come forward and start praying whenever we start singing. You can just stay where you are and just let the song be your prayer and be your praise. But regardless, when we hear truth from God's word, this isn't my opinion. Whenever we hear truth from God's word, we have two options. We can either accept it or reject it, but we can't ignore it. So what are you going to do this morning when it comes to humility and when it comes to dealing with pride? How will you respond? Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. You're great. You're amazing. And God, passages sometimes can be inspiring and sometimes they can be convicting. And we love the inspiring and affirming ones. And we often stray away from the convicting ones. But these passages like this, God, they're not to tear us down. God, they're, they're here to help us and to make us better. And God, I pray that when, as we tackle this issue of pride, of turning our life and how we view life and think about life from a prison to a playground, God, I pray that your spirit would graciously, lovingly, um, God, stir in, in these people to where even now in this moment, there are things that you are bringing to their mind and to their spirit and to their attention that they need to deal with and they need to work with, not as punishment, but as a reward of knowing you, that life does not have to live and stay broken, but we can make strides and steps of following you towards wholeness, towards what it looks like to one day be complete whenever we are standing face to face with you. God, you're great, you're amazing, and in this time of response, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.